Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 171, Communist, Rebel, and Capitalist Wannabe, Boris Yeltsin. Before I get into the podcast, I want to say I'm back. Uh, took a few months off, as you may have uh, heard from one of my updates. Uh, the play is over. I'm no longer playing the role of Sheriff Tate in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm no longer the chairman of the fundraising committee for my Rotary Club, taking a lot of things off the plate. And so I'm going to do an episode this week and next week. Unfortunately, afterwards, I have to take another couple weeks off because I'm flying out to New York City for a meeting. But then after that, I plan to do regularly scheduled podcasts from here on out. So anyway, let's get back to the topic at hand. On February 1st, 1931, in Butka, Talitsky District, Sverdlovsk, USSR, Nikolai and Klavdia welcomed a baby boy to the world, Boris Nikolaevich Yeltsin. They could never have imagined that their child would help dismantle the USSR some 60 years later. His father Nikolai probably would be happy as he had been sent to a gulag for three years, starting in 1934. Going back a little bit, in 1932, Stalin was forcibly collectivizing the farms and had ordered entire harvests confiscated. It was the time of the Holomodor, where millions of people died of starvation, so Boris's family decided to move away, heading to Kazan, some 700 miles or about 1,100 kilometers away. After he was released from the Gulag, Nikolai moved the family yet again, this time to Berzniki in the Perm Krai, to be near his brother Ivan. Boris went to school at the Pushkin High School in Berzniki. Physically active, he participated in skiing, boxing, wrestling, track and field, as well as numerous other sports. His scholastic endeavors focused on construction and engineering, a field his father worked at for many years. After school, Boris went into construction and was considered a very good worker. He moved up the ranks fairly quickly, which was a bit of a surprise as he was not yet a member of the Communist Party. Still, in order to move up any more, he had to join the party, which he did in 1961. But he did not become part of the nomenclatura until about 1968. It was this nomenclatura that he was to condemn in 1990. Before we go on, I want to explain what nomenclatura was in the Soviet Union. The word comes from the Latin word, with the same pronunciation, meaning list of names. In the USSR, it constituted the list of those members of the Communist Party that, quote, were a category of people within the Soviet Union and other Eastern Bloc countries who held various key administrative positions in all spheres of these countries' activity, government, industry, agriculture, education, etc., whose positions were granted only with approval by the Communist Party of each country or region. Some have called the nomenclatura a class of people, which seems about right. This class system was polished under Stalin, then modified somewhat under Khrushchev and later Brezhnev as a more of a patron-client system. The patron would help the client move up in the ranks, while the client was expected to bolster the patron's standing. Many times, though, the client took down his patron, like the time that Khrushchev ousted Kaganovich in 1957, or when Brezhnev had Khrushchev removed in 1964. 
post-Soviet Union, we see this patron-client relationship playing out with our man Yeltsin and his client, Vladimir Putin. This would also explain how Putin protected his patron after he took office. This nomenclatura is part of Russia today, which explains much of the corruptness that permeates the country. Back to Boris. By 1976, he was made first secretary of the CPSU committee of the Sverdlovsk Oblast, where he would stay until 1985. While there, he would oversee the destruction of a very important historical place, the Apatyev House, where the Tsar, where Tsar Nicholas II and his family were brutally murdered in 1918. In January of 1981, Yeltsin was awarded the Order of Lenin for his service to the Communist Party and Soviet state in connection with his 50th birthday. Two months later, he was made a full member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The USSR was led at the time by Leonid Brezhnev, and the country was considered to be at its zenith in power. The problem was, it was so corrupt and bankrupt financially that anyone with any knowledge of goings-on knew that things were not really going well. On February 18, 1986, Yeltsin became a candidate member of the Politburo, which was a non-voting yet prestigious position. He was by now also the de facto mayor of Moscow. Boris was considered a reformer, a fierce one, firing corrupt officials, which made him really quite popular with the general public. The common man on the street knew how bad things were, but the Communist Party didn't want to admit it. Yeltsin also began to make a lot of enemies, many of them old-time entrenched hardliners. On September 10, 1987, Boris Yeltsin did something no one had ever done in Soviet history. He sent in his letter of resignation from the Politburo in response to a dressing down from hardliner Igor Ligachev. Mikhail Gorbachev, now the head of the Soviet Union, was stunned and asked Boris to reconsider. On October 27, 1987, Yeltsin spoke to the Central Committee, expressing his frustration with the slow pace of reforms that Gorbachev was proposing. The last person to criticize the leadership in this fashion was Leon Trotsky some 60 years earlier. And you know how that turned out for him. Gorbachev was furious and attacked Boris viciously. In response, Yeltsin apparently tried to commit suicide on November 9th, two days before a meeting of the Moscow City Party Committee. Despite being hospitalized in bad condition, Gorbachev ordered Yeltsin to the meeting where he was humiliated by his fellow communists. Boris would never forgive Gorbachev for that incident, nor should he have. The Communist Party began a smear campaign against Yeltsin, especially pointing out his heavy drinking. But this tact backfired as Boris's popularity soared as he was viewed as a true reformer and against the entrenched corruption. Due to perestroika, open elections were held in May of 1989, and with 92% of the vote, Yeltsin was elected to a seat on the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union. Later that year, he went to the United States, where he went on a tour of a grocery store in Houston, Texas. It stunned him, and when he headed back to the USSR on the plane, he was quoted as saying, quote, What have they done to our poor people? When back in Moscow, he was to have said, The pain for all of us, for a country so rich, so talented, 
and so exhausted by incessant experiments. He saw this vast difference between his Soviet Union and the United States, that really a lot of it had been a lie at telling him how great they were in the Soviet Union. Well, from here, Yeltsin was elected chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet of the RSFSR in 1990. In 91, he won the presidency for the Russian Republic. On August 18, 1991, the coup against Gorbachev began and failed three days later. Yeltsin helped his foe regain power, but that only lasted for a short time. By the end of the year, the USSR was dissolved and replaced by the Commonwealth of Independent States. And now a word from our sponsor. Knowledge Through Solutions is a company that my wife and I formed in 1998 to create nutritional supplements that are unique to the marketplace. One of the products, Cineplex Amino Acids, has been used by thousands of people around the world. A unique combination created from a collagen base with free-form amino acids added, along with cofactors to help improve metabolism, provides lots of benefits in promoting optimal health. You can learn more about it at www.kt-solutions.com. Now back to the podcast. The next eight years, from 1991 to 1999, Boris Yeltsin led his country, country through a very tough time in its conversion from a Marxist communist system to one that would be more capitalistic in nature. The problem he faced was changing the way of doing things with a country of citizens that didn't know anything other than communism. The government would provide everything they needed, like health care and jobs, but that was no longer the case. Now, instead of going over the details of the time, I want to reflect on why Yeltsin went from being the most popular man in Russia to one of the most despised. At one point, a popularity poll was taken, and he came in at only 1% to 2% favorability rating. In my personal opinion, I don't think that anyone could have pulled off the conversion from communism any better than Yeltsin. Yeah, there might have been a few less mistakes here and there, but if you look at the broader picture, Boris was in a truly no-win situation. As Karl Marx once said, quote, Men make their own history but they do not make it just as they please under conditions of their own choosing. Yeltsin stepped into the presidency and made history by helping to tear down the Soviet Union, but the condition he inherited was a poor one. The state of financial affairs of Russia was in horrible shape. The situation was one that even a great leader would have had a hard time turning around. What we would see is that while Yeltsin was good at tearing things down, he would be rather inept at building things back up again, which is kind of ironic considering his training in construction. His numerous tries at economic so-called shock therapy developed by men like Gaidar, Chubias, and others have been met historically with both disdain and nods of agreement. During this period, we have a situation not unlike the period of the robber barons of the mid to late 1800s in the United States. We have extremely wealthy people at the top and lots of poor people struggling to make ends meet. In 1993, there was a parliamentary crisis with over 100 people dying at the White House in Moscow. But the worst was yet to come. In 1994, the Chechen War broke out. And this is a part of Russian history I touched on in the past, but I want to cover it in the future as it was a real devastating 
period for both the Chechen people and Russia. The Russian army performed poorly, which led to a further disintegration of the pride the Russian people had about themselves. By 1996, the mere possibility that Yeltsin would win the coming presidential election seemed to be between slim and none. He was universally despised, and he was doing little to change that perception. As Steinberg and Ryazanovsky put it in their book, A History of Russia, quote, After five years of his rule, most of the Russian people were in dire and still worsening economic straits, with no end to their tribulations in sight. As already stated, agriculture was in shambles, industrial output kept declining, the government went on borrowing money, but did not even provide wages or social security payments to its millions of employees and retirees who had to survive for weeks, months, and sometimes for years on their own. But somehow he was to survive because of his main opponent in the coming election when Gennady Zayoganov, the leader of the now resurgent Communist Party. This scared the by now billionaire oligarchs who believed that a return to communism would destroy everything that they had worked for, so they put a lot of money into his campaign. When the first round of elections was over on June 16, 1996, Yeltsin received 35% of the vote, followed closely by Zayuganov at 32%. Alexander Lebed received 15, Yavolinsky 7, Zhinogvovsky 6, and Gorbachev coming in way behind it, a, a remarkable half of a percent. Because no one got the majority, there was a second round of elections held on July 3rd. Yeltsin received 53.8%, with Zayuganov receiving 40.3%. What most historians have said about the election, it was more about hating Zayuganov, more so than the people's hatred of Yeltsin. The beginning of 1997 was better for Russia, as the economy improved and the war in Chechnya ended. But that was short-lived, and within months the situation turned dire yet again. Wages were not being paid to government workers, hard currency was scarce, and investment from foreigners was drying up. On August 17, 1998, the government defaulted on billions of dollars of short-term treasury bills. This day was known as Black Monday. On top of that, Yeltsin's health was in a steep decline. By his State of the Federation speech in April of 1999, his talk was disjointed and feeble. It was apparent that either he was going to die in office or something had to happen. A few months later, Yeltsin appointed a former young lieutenant in the KGB. Vladimir Putin was appointed as the prime minister, replacing Sergei Stepashin. It was at this time that terrorists struck with bombs in both Moscow and southern Russia, killing over 300 people. Chechen rebels were blamed, which caused the opening of the Second Chechen War. The war went well in the early stages, which increased the popularity of Putin to pull well over 50%, with Yeltsin coming in at 1.7. Well, at least he was more popular than Gorbachev. Boris knew his time was up, and he needed to hand things over to someone younger, healthier, and more popular than himself. In his New Year's address on December 31, 1999, he resigned, effective immediately, giving the presidency over to Putin. Yeltsin was to stay primarily on the sidelines for the rest of his life, occasionally coming out to criticize Putin, but for the most part, 
He backed and supported his former pupil. On April 23, 2007, at the age of 76, Boris Yeltsin died of congestive heart failure. President Putin said the following on April 25th, the day of the national mourning about his patron. Quote, His presidency has inscribed him forever in Russian and in world history. A new democratic Russia was born during his time, a free, open, and peaceful country, a state in which the power truly does belong to the people. The first president of Russia's strength consisted in the mass support of Russian citizens for his ideas and aspirations. Thanks to the will and direct initiative of President Boris Yeltsin, a new constitution, one which declared human rights a supreme value, was adopted. It gave people the opportunity to freely express their thoughts, to freely choose power in Russia, to realize their creative and entrepreneurial plans. This constitution permitted us to begin building a truly effective federation. We knew him as a brave and warm-hearted spiritual person. He was an upstanding and courageous national leader, and he was always very honest and frank while defending his position. Yeltsin assumed full responsibility for everything he called for, for everything he aspired to, for everything he tried to do and did do for the sake of Russia, for the sake of millions of Russians. And he invariably took upon himself, let it in his heart, all the trials and tribulations of Russia, people's difficulties and problems. Now, could another man or woman have done better than Yeltsin? Probably. Much better? Probably not. I believe that time will improve his image, not because of what he accomplished, but of what he wanted to accomplish. He wanted the Russian people to have a better life, one that was like the people who shopped at that mid-sized grocery store in Houston, Texas, that he visited in September 1989. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next week and next time as we recount the life and times of Yeltsin's predecessor, Mikhail Gorbachev. So now, as always, das vidanya, ispasiba borshoya.